be back together and if anybody ever asks you what's new, you can tell them his mercies. Yeah, every morning, says it right in the middle of Lamentations. Today we're going to pick up on last week's lesson, which is why I wrote in green part two. So this is our, our title. Be Righteous, Deuteronomy 10, 12 to eleven thirty two, part 2. And we had left off actually in chapter 10 and verses 21 and 22. We were beginning to look at, look at that. And then we had some uh, good questions to, that we began to discuss a few things, which... I actually printed out some other notes to elaborate on some of those things a, a little later if we have time. If you want to join me in your copy of God's Word, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 10, 21. That's where we're going to go. And I'm actually going to read the, the larger section 12 to 22 just so we can kind of gather the, the context as we hop back in here. And I'll remind you in this section, so the, this uh, section in Deuteronomy, it begins back in chapter 9. It's 9 through 11 is the, the section. And in 9, he warns the Israelites to, to not be self-righteous. says, when, it, when you get into the land that I promised you, remember, it, it's, it's promised land. It's not earned land. You know, you didn't get there because of things that you did. It's because I, I graciously gave it to you. So he says, when you enter into that land, don't say it's because of our righteousness. You know, it's, it's not because you did what God said that you're here. And, and then chapter... 10, you know, as the, as the logic develops, he, well, and, and through chapter 9, really, 9 into 10, uh, Moses explains to him, the reason that you guys shouldn't be self-righteous is because you're stiff-necked, you're rebellious, you know, guys, look at your track record, like, you don't have a track record of, of righteousness at, at all, uh, you're not being realistic about yourselves, even, <laughs> If you're thinking that way. And so it's like, well, if you're not self-righteous, then, then what's the response? Well, the response is to be righteous, which I'm, I'm taking that largely from that, that phrase when he's saying, circumcise your heart. He said, that, that's where real righteousness comes from. But that command for them to circumcise their hearts points out the reality they can't do that. Uh, they can't do the righteous thing that God requires for them which points them to their need for God to do it for them, which is how Moses ends his sermon series on Deuteronomy. In the last chapter, chapter 30, verse 6, he says, you know, God will circumcise your hearts. He's, he's going to do for you what, he's going to do this righteous thing for you that you could never do for yourself. But we're going to have that exhortation for them to do that, to, to teach them this very thing here in this, this section where we're at 10, 12 to 22 is what we're going to read. So let's pick up Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. 
So now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For Yahweh your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the fearsome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows love for the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. So show love for the sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Yahweh your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and to him you shall cling, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and fearsome things for you which your eyes have seen." Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, which is a revelation of yourself, and we thank you for these great things that you reveal about yourself, even in these few verses, your love for an unworthy people, your grace for the undeserving a call to the highest privilege in life, which is to fear you and serve you, to cling to you, to be faithful to you, to swear our allegiance to you and to keep it. God, we praise you for your faithfulness, that you keep all of your promises, even going as far back as to Abraham and your promise of a people as numerous as the stars of heaven. You are faithful. You do great and wonderful things, and we pray that you would increase our motivation, our desire, our devotion to you as we would behold you as you have revealed yourself in your word. Amen. You heard there at the end of that section, I read verses 20 and 21, this focus on him, this focus on he, uh, him you shall serve, him you shall cling, you know, his name you shall swear, he is your praise, he is your God. What you could think of this as perhaps a, a corrective for how people think about living for God. Sometimes they, people think about the Christian life as, well, if I, if I do ABC and XYZ, then I'll be living the Christian life. You know, if I believe this sort of morality, I think this about the family and live this sort of way, then I will be a Christian. But we see here that what is at the, the center of this command to love God is not doing things for him, but God is at the center. Uh, it's him. It's about his name. It's about who he is ultimately. When you read commands in scripture, they're not about you primarily. They're 
primarily about God making something known about his name. Because when you're, how you live is a reflection of what you think God is like. And you think back to this sort of concept in the beginning of the Bible. It says that, that man was made in the image of God. We are made to be little mirrors or reflections of what our creator is like. Which is why it's not you know, a small deal to tell a white lie. Because when we're doing that, we're saying, well, the reason that it's okay to tell uh, white lies is because my creator is dishonest sometimes. But you, know, you see, that's not, that's not a small offense to, to misrepresent God by something that you think is small, but in reality, it's cosmic treason. The reason we're to tell the truth is because God is a God of truth who cannot lie. So everything that we do in life matters more than perhaps we recognize it first. So the center of, you know, a command that we're given is not primarily about us, though it is for our good to keep a commandment of God any and every time, but it's primarily about a representation of who our God is and what he is like. And you see that in this phrase, he is your praise. Why do you do what you do? Well, it's because God's given you a new heart and you want to love him with everything that you have and you want all the praise to go to him. He is your praise. It doesn't say yours is your praise. You You do something and you get recognized for it and you're like, all right, people finally understand. Like the thing that I did is great and I know it because they told me. Well, you want the praise to go to him. So you see, there's kind of a twofold nature to this concept that he is your praise. Like, you know, you want the praise to to go to him, but you also don't want to be receiving it yourself because the keeping of the commandments is to point people to the glory of God, to point people to his character and what his salvation is like. The focus isn't on the do's and the don'ts. So if the focus isn't on the do's and don'ts of Scripture, then how do you respond in this relationship that you have with God? On verse 20, you hear these repetitions of concepts from the Shema, as we talked about it from Deuteronomy 6, which is summed up in fearing and loving God. You, know, you, you fear him, you respect him, you, you love him with everything that's inside of you, everything that's inside of you that comes outside of you, and everything that is around you that God has placed around you. You love him with all of that stuff. And so what do you, what do, you do with him if the relationship isn't about do's and don'ts? Well, it's these words that we hear repeated again, verse 20, You fear him, you serve him, you cling to him. It's by his name that you swear, and that idea of swearing is allegiance. You're saying, you know, I I belong to you, and you you bought me, and I live for you. So we're to fear and to serve him who is the greatest master. We are accountable to him, and that's a privilege and a joy that's been afforded to us by God's grace. So who God is and what he does is at the center of 
all of his law instruction. Uh, the command, which is to love him, and all the other commandments that would fall under what it looks like to live out loving and fearing God. So when we think about this sort of statement here, Yahweh is once again communicating to his people that he is the central reality of their lives. In a way, he's again repeating what he said back in Exodus 6, 7. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's saying that to them all over again. Now, throughout Deuteronomy, we have talked about these sort of vertical and horizontal sort of aspects throughout the book. There's this vertical aspect in you having a, a relationship to God, but there's also this horizontal aspect that, that goes throughout all time. You have a relation to what God was doing in his plan in the past, what he's doing in the present, and in the future. And both of those have to be tied together. You have to have a, this real vertical relationship with God, and you exist horizontally in space and time within God's redemptive plan. And these things, we always have to hold them together and understand how they work. So you can't, you don't horizontally start living out God's plan so that you can get the vertical relationship. That's one way you could do this backwards. The Israelites weren't to, you know, build the tabernacle so that they could have the relationship with God or to keep the commandments so that they could get the relationship with God. Before they ever had these commands, they had a relationship with God. The reason that they... The whole Exodus thing happened wasn't because of the Israelites. It was because God decided to act and to bring them into covenant relationship with himself because he had made a covenant with Abraham to do that very thing. And then they get brought into that horizontal thing where they're connected back to the Abrahamic covenant and they're being pushed forward to the new covenant ultimately. And as we've talked about, that's exactly what the biblical covenants do. They, they frame and forward everything that's happening in history, you know, not just here in Deuteronomy, but even in the moment that you're living in right now. So if you want to understand the Bible and the world that you live in, you want to understand what the biblical covenants are and uh, how they all connect and develop. So we did a summer discipleship training class on that, if you want to look that up online. Or you can just twist my arm a little bit and I'll just do another lesson on it some week. But you see what's happening here with Israel. He, he's, when he tells them to circumcise their heart, he's telling them to do the vertical component, which, again, it should point out, I, I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, how do you, how do you like, circumcise some immaterial part of yourself, especially when you're stiff-necked and you're rebellious, or let's put it in the terminology of Ephesians chapter 2, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, he doesn't say you were like partially dead, you were just really, really super sick, and you just need to agree with me to let me be your doctor. No, you, you were dead. What do dead people do? They stink. 
So pointing out this circumcise your heart, commanding them to establish the vertical relationship so that they could do the horizontal, points out they can't do either. Uh, they can't make themselves right with God. So saying, you can't be self-righteous. It's not, it's not a possibility because you're dead in sin. But you can be gifted with righteousness, which is exactly how it worked with Abraham. When Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. It didn't say righteousness came from, but it was counted to, to him. It was put on his account by God because he trusted that God <coughs> was his righteousness, which was developed more in Romans chapter 4. We see those sort of concepts and uh, the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when it talks about he made him sin you know, who, who knew no sin, but then it talks about so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we talk about this as the great exchange that happened on the cross. You know, the only thing we have to bring to the cross is the account of our sin. And Jesus only has an account of righteousness. But when he died on the cross, there's this exchange where he takes our sin account totally on himself and then gives us the gift of his righteousness account. That's one of my favorite truths in scripture also known as uh, his active and passive obedience or imputed righteousness, if you want the fancy terms. Or you could just think about it, uh, the great exchange. So the law, as we're reading the book of the law, the law never takes any, anyone upward toward God. So you don't start building your way up toward him because you're keeping the instruction that he's given you in scripture. Rather, what the law does is it, it pushes you forward to go to Christ. Now the, we had talked about this in terms of you know, going from Moses' house to Jesus' house. You, know, you start off as, as a, a child in Moses' house, but his intent wasn't for you to just always live there and potentially like move down into the basement with some Cheetos in the next box. Like his intention was always for you to grow up and to move out. And he was teaching them, you need to go live in Jesus' house. My house is, is a temporary place for you people. And this is exactly how the Mosaic Covenant is spoken of in Scripture as temporary and then as passing away and then obsolete because they were always meant to move from Old Covenant to New Covenant to move out from one house to another, from one administration to another. Now, chapter 11, as we read last week, it reminds Israel some things that happened in the past. You might remember Korah's rebellion, Dathan and Abiram were there. And what God is reminding them of here is... Uh, you guys have had accountability with me in the past. So you remember that rebellion with, this is, that's in verse 6, 11, 6, you know, what God did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and their tents and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. He says, remember that. And don't think that stuff like that won't happen again. So it's not an, a regular occurrence which you can be thankful for. 
but know that it has happened and that and the Hebrew word for fear means fear in the Bible so when it comes to that fearing God like you there's this element of it in which you're actually afraid of him he could do something like that to me and he would be right in doing so but there's also that element within fear of it's a fear of a king you recognize that he's above you he has a majesty that you don't you don't have and you want to show respect to him as well and this reminder of their past accountability is he's telling you're going to have future accountability as well he says I, I haven't changed in that way you know you could think of it as God is saying I'm always going to be your accountability partner Every man has to give an account to God for what he does with the life that has been given him. And we're going to talk about the blessings and curses more at the, the end of this lesson. But one of the things you see is he, he Moses is, you know, reiterate, starting to reiterate some of the blessings and curses that he had told this previous generation about in Leviticus 26. And he's going to elaborate on once we get to Deuteronomy 28. But one of, one of those things is it's tied, well, every, every blessing and curse is tied specifically to the land. That's one thing to, to note about it. But one of, one of them that you'll be most familiar with is this idea of rain. He says, you know, if you guys are obeying, there's, there's going to be rain for your crops. Because here, here's a concern for uh, people who can't go to the grocery store. When you don't live next to the Nile and you can't just irrigate from a body of water and you're out in the wilderness, how are you going to be able to eat? Well, you can only eat if there is rain. If it's not raining, there's no food. But now what's tied in to Israel as a nation in their life is you have to obey to have the rain, to be able to have the crops, to feed you and to feed the cattle so you can also eat them it's all tied together you disobey then there's no rain which is uh, maybe kind of unlocks understanding some certain bible passages and why it would rain and you know why is it raining when uh, things are going well with solomon you know why is it not raining and elijah wants to pray about rain when the israelites are disobedient uh, and it's important as you're reading your bible to ask yourself what covenants are operative at this time in the Bible and then what covenants are actually operative in your time in life. So if you think, hey, I'm going to obey God and that's going to rain. <laughs> it doesn't work that way for you because you're not uh, part of corporate Israel under the Mosaic covenant in this time. Uh, you'll just, you'll either be disappointed or surprised and confused at what happens with your obedience and the weather. just as uh, this is a bonus thing I'm going to tell you so you know in the future Israel would seek Baal for rain so think they would disobey God you know, it, it wouldn't be raining and Baal is the word for husband so what they would say well you know Yahweh if you're not going to give us rain we're going to go to our husband and ask him and it, he's saying you know, I, I'm the one who is married, like you're my bride and you're being adulterous with Baal and going to the fertility God to try to get rain for yourselves. So you can see 
the, the blessings and curses, one of the points I want to make here is uh, they, they, in a way, give you, they tell you how to interpret the rest of the Bible. Well, from this point on, so it's like, well, why are the blessings happening for Israel? Well, because they're obeying. Why are the curses happening? Because they're disobeying. They function as a spiritual barometer so they can see this is where we're at in our relationship with God. And everybody on the planet can see it by what's happening to us. So these blessings and curses, they're so important that they actually put their national security on the line because when you read through them, some of the curses is that your enemies will overtake you if you're not obeying. You'll be handed over to them and they will be a snare to you. And coming up later, we're going to have those Mount, Mount Ebal and Gerizim, which are these, they're still around, by the way, look at pictures of them. They'll be really underwhelming to you because you live closer to real mountains. It's like, those are just like little hills, you know? That like, looks like part of my yard. Uh, there are two matching mountains, and you have, you know, Ebal in the background and Gerizim on the other one. And Ebal was the mount where all the curses were shouted, and from Gerizim where all the blessings were shouted. If you don't remember which one, just remember Ebal sounds like evil, evil. That's where you get the evil curses from. And this is at the end of Joshua, but he's, he's preaching in front of those mountains in the valley of Shechem. So when he's preaching about, you know, the, the curses and the blessings, they're looking at this stuff. You know, the, their archaeology is tied to their theology, and they're seeing it all around them. And he, he's telling them, you know, look, look at these two things. You can't straddle them. You can't put one leg on the curse and, and another one on the blessing. You have to choose who you're going to serve, and you can't bring your idols with you, which... You know, the irony in that whole event is they're actually holding their, their idols in their hands and saying, we will follow Yahweh. And then Joshua told them like three times, you people are not understanding me. <laughs> like, you got to get rid of those things. And they say, we will do it. He's like, this isn't working, people. <laughs> We're going to get to that passage too. It's one of my, my favorite ones. So this place, Shechem, this valley of Shechem, it was first mentioned in scripture in the covenant with Abraham going back to Genesis 12 and so as I talked about their, their archaeology tied to their theology they said this, this is the place where covenants are made and broken this is the place to remember that God is faithful and we're unfaithful every time we walk through this valley but they're also reminded this is the place where God promised the land and it was a reminder that God's still going to do that and be faithful because the land isn't bound up in their ability to keep the Mosaic covenant. So that's maybe something that people often get confused about where they think that the land promises are tied up within the Mosaic covenant and they think of it as land to be earned rather than was previously promised and God has to do it because he's faithful. So you see what's going to happen with uh, Israel is, they, they can't make the land promise go away because it, it's a promise. It's not something that God says you have to work for it to, to earn it within the Mosaic Covenant. They're going to fail at the Mosaic Covenant, which is going to show them they need somebody else 
to take them in, into the land. Somebody else has to fulfill this for us because one, God has to be faithful to the, the Abrahamic covenant as he made promise for land seed and the blessings that are mentioned in there and that it's not ultimately dependent on the human actors. It's dependent on God's grace and faithfulness. So, trying to kind of conclude this section before we come back to, to talking about the blessings and the curses a little bit more. We've talked about this development of being told to not be self-righteous, but to be righteous. So, well, how, how does that take place? Well, it takes place by, as we mentioned from Deuteronomy 30, God has to circumcise your heart. And this sort of concept is picked up in Colossians 2.12. If you want to turn over to the right side of your Bible, Colossians 2.12, or 2.11. So here, Paul is writing to the saints at Colossae about Christ being number one in everything and explaining you know, why they have this new relationship with Christ and how they're to, to think about him. He's, he says in verse 11, picking up there, he says, in whom you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you think of that, uh, the circumcision which was performed by Christ, in which you know, he cuts away your, your sin and your sinful nature and disposes of it and gives you a, a new righteousness account and a new nature. You go from being a, you use the language of Romans 6, from being a slave of sin to now being a, a slave of righteousness to being you know, bound up in sin where the only thing that you could do before you were converted, the only thing you could do was sin. But now you're free to obey and you have new abilities, new desires by the Spirit of God who has caused you to be born again by the Word of God. Romans 3, 21 and following says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That was Romans 3, 21 to 24, if you're taking notes there. Now, you might remember this phrase that you read throughout the, the First Testament, to obey is better than sacrifice. Is that a phrase you're familiar with? You think about Samuel, you know, he says this to, to Saul, you know, to, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Kind of a curious sort of statement. What do you think it means? To obey is better than sacrifice. 
yeah, you're making the sacrifices because you don't obey. You know, why, why do you come to the priest with the fat of rams? Are you doing it to, to earn something? Say, well, no, you're showing up with that sacrifice because you've failed. But you're also, you are doing that act. Well, you can be doing it in obedience or disobedience, right? Well, what do you think I'm getting at there? You know, you can externally come and, you know, as an Israelite, bring your ram to the altar or whatever, but you, you could be doing it out of obedience or disobedience. How does that work? Yeah, it's ultimately about the condition of your heart, which that's exactly what that phrase is getting at. You know, God is the God of the heart. He says, I want your heart, not just your actions. Which you remember that when he's back in Deuteronomy and he's telling them to circumcise their, their hearts. This was the, the new generation which hadn't been circumcised at all. Their, their parents had been externally circumcised and all died in the wilderness. Now, they're the new generation. None of them were externally circumcised, but you see, some of them were internally circumcised, which is why they had a zeal for the Lord, like Phineas is an example, or, you know, these uh, acts of obedience that you see done among the nation. So what is it ultimately that you think separates self Self, the self-righteous from the righteous. What separates the self-righteous from the righteous? What's the difference between the two? Yeah, cross-reference Romans 10, right? And bringing up that idea that, you know, the Israelites, they thought that, you know, righteousness was in the law. They thought their allegiance was to the law rather than our allegiance is to Yahweh. And they thought that, you know, they, they could achieve righteousness through the law, which was self-righteousness, rather than being taught by the law. You don't have any. You need somebody to give it to you. Andrew, you were going to say something. You can just read Romans 10 to us. Yeah. Right. So they're talking about this relationship of faith and works. And you can have something, you can have counterfeit fruit, right? You can have some, it looks like you're doing the, it, you know, something that could, uh, I can't think of like a fruit tree that does this to you, but, you know, it looks like an apple, but you bite it, it's like, that's not an apple, that's nasty. That's something else. Do what? A pluot. Okay. Yeah. Or if you had like a pineapple on a pine tree or something like that. Anyways, we need to make a, like a, a true theological point here about something and edify the people. So <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're tied to the root of Christ, you're gonna produce the fruit of the spirit, right? 
But apart from being tied to that root, that's not going to come through you. You don't have his righteousness. You'll just have self-righteousness. And while it might look the same to other people on the outside, what matters is what you're actually tied to ultimately. Do you really actually have this love relationship with God or not? Which I think what, it, what we're pulling together here is what, what separates, one thing that separates the self-righteous from the righteous is their motivation. You know, why are, why are they doing what they're doing? So, well, uh, are you carrying out this act of worship because you want something from God? You know, Israel would do this, they'll say, well, we're gonna have a fast, and when we have the fast, then we'll get the rain, and then we'll get the political alliance that we want, and everything will be fixed. And then God responds and he says, I hate your fast. So to, to obey is better than sacrifice or festival keeping or fasting or any of that. You know, I, I, want, I want your heart, I want you to trust me implicitly no matter what's going on in your circumstances. Now, motivation separates the moral person from the person who's actually devoted from their heart, they can both look exactly the same on the outside and, and none of us could ever discern it. But they're entirely different on the inside and God can see that. You know, it talks about that in Ecclesiastes, like within a worship service, uh, you know, people see all the activity and they hear the sound of it. But he says, you know, don't be, be deceived. God knows the foolishness that's going on in that place. And that's happening because he can see what's inside of a man. What separates the self-righteous from the righteous is not just their motivation. I think we use the word desire. The, the, the desires of the circumcised heart are different. The desires of the regenerate, converted, born-again person are different than the unconverted. It's kind of like there's a difference between, you know, you have to do something and well, you have to and you want to because you, you want to honor the God who has redeemed you. You want to, you know that his word is true and to walk in his ways is always the best thing for you. And so you, your desires toward his instruction are different, but it's built on your relationship to him ultimately. Uh, you love him, you're wanting to honor him. And this is something that we want to understand about ourselves. Maybe you're thinking about your own heart. You know, ha, 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 you know, have I been converted to Christ? Well, do you desire fellowship with God? It's not one of those things where you think, well, I just, if I want to be a good Christian, I have to have a Bible reading plan and I have to pray sometimes and I have to fellowship and show up at some church thing at least twice in, the, in a week but you do it and it's just a burden to you because it's not uh, about this love relationship with God. It's just these things that you think that you have to do, maybe by tradition, maybe by how you were raised, maybe because you think, well, I'll get things out of it. Uh, my life will be better. I'll be happier. Now, all of this might sound really strange to you if you think of your Christianity in terms of how practical it is. You're always looking for what's the practical thing that I can do and application is always some practical step as opposed to 
Well, application can sometimes just be learning about who God is. It can be just enjoying him. It can be simply worshiping him for who he is and what he has done. It doesn't always have to result in, you know, three steps to a better marriage or better parenting or being a faithful single church member or something like that. Christ isn't merely a a drill sergeant with a task list. Christ is a person to be known and loved. So I don't just think about, like when you think about Jesus, oh, he's the one who just gives me a bunch of stuff to do. It's like, no, he's, he's somebody that I, that I know and I love. And people that you know and love, it's okay to just spend time together. Like, it's okay to, you know, you, you go out to do something. Like, well, what are we going to do? Like, we're just going to be together. <laughs> it's like, well, can you give me three steps to, you know, how to enjoy this hike together? <laughs> it's, it's like, well, you could start, number one, not saying something like that again. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now think about this. It, it, it's possible to believe right teaching and have right behavior and be ungodly. So you, you can know the truth. You can look like you're living it on the outside and be in total disobedience and rebellion against God. You can look godly, but be denying the power of it by actually being internally transformed from within while you're doing those things. And... Religious sinners are the worst because they learn to not do those gross sins or those things that would be looked down upon in public or by a culture. And they know how to hide their inward sins behind church activity or they know how to say the right things to disguise it. But... Their sins, while they might be able to, to hide them well, are a greater offense to God because they're, they're sinning against greater knowledge because they know more about God and they're refusing to believe those things. They're sinning against more grace because God isn't giving them what is due them for their sin, but he's still allowing them to be around the, the people of God and to not be punished immediately for their sin. The fear and love of God should compel us to deal with those sort of sins. Like we recognize that like everything might look fine on the outside to everybody else. Like nobody will ever detect this particular sin that you have hidden because you have hid it from other people, but you haven't hidden it from God. But when we fear and we love God, it makes us want to deal, deal with those sins that we, we've found a way to camouflage them in the light. So we make it look like it, it all just blends in. You might think about some of the most godly people you know. They've probably asked you for forgiveness for something that you thought that they didn't need to ask you forgiveness for. Like, why, why are you asking me for forgiveness for like, how you said that? You know, I didn't, I mean, you didn't say anything wrong to me. But what they're dealing with is they, they knew their motivations were off, even if they sounded holy or sounded godly when it came off what they recognized about their, themselves and their maturity was my motivation was off my, my desires were off my, my affections were off when I said that and even if you don't know that what I did was wrong I know it and I'm asking you to forgive me 
Any uh, thoughts or questions on this sort of concept, the difference between the, the self-righteous and righteous before we move on from it? Very well, I'll ask you a question. How often does a branch need to be connected to the vine in order to bear fruit? Yeah, always, right? You know, think about that in our relationship. You know, Jesus talks about our relationship to him. You know, he, he's the vine. He's the one who's producing all the energy and health. But you're, if you want to have the, the fruit of the spirit, you as a branch need to be tied to Christ as the vine. Uh, you need to be attached to the branch daily if you're going to, to bear fruit for the sake of God's kingdom. Every day of your life is a decision to abide in Christ. Which is what motivates us to engage. This is one of the things that motivates the Bible reading, right? This is one of the things that motivates the prayer. Because yeah, I just want to abide in Christ. I want to, to bear fruit for his kingdom. I want, I want to be fruitful and multiply uh, evangelistically or within good works within the church. Uh, I want to do that because of all that God has done for me. I, I want to be gracious toward others because he has shown grace toward me. I want to show mercy to others because he's shown mercy toward me. I want to be patient with others who are struggling with things or perhaps have done something that I could take offense at. But instead, I want to pray that I would be unoffendable and bear long, suffer long with other people like God has toward me. And I want to do that because of who he is. And I want there to be just some small picture of what my God is like through how I live with other people. Yeah, so you have what's uh, been brought up here is this idea that there's some branches, this idea of abiding in Christ, there's some branches that are on the vine, they produce fruit. But what about those branches that they're, they're on the vine, but they don't produce fruit and they're cut off and they're thrown into the fire? Well, what it shows is that though you know, externally, when you think like back in John, you have, you know, Jewish people being confronted with thinking, well, we are branches that are tied to the true vine. You know, Yahweh has a, a vineyard and we're it. But you're, the, the vineyard prophecies aren't really in their favor. You know, you read back in the beginning of Isaiah and he tells them about this vineyard that God has made. He sets up this awesome security system and watchtower and that it's going to, produce these awesome grapes but all it produces is vomit grapes and I said what should the owner of the vineyard do and they and they all tell Isaiah well he should just burn it down and if they're it's a bad vineyard you know why put up with it just you know cut it off and 
Isaiah basically says, you are that vineyard. Yeah, they had incriminated themselves because they hadn't produced the fruit that God had commanded them to do. So that's you know, part of the background that's tied up in this illustration of the vine and branches, even when you get in toward, towards the end of John. I think it's around chapter 16 with the vine and the branches. There's some that are cut off. like They look like they're, they're tied to God, but they're not producing fruit. And he says, I cut them off because they don't belong to the vine. You know, I don't associate with them. It's you know, like Matthew 7. And he says, I never knew you. He's like, well, but I was a branch and I produced all of this fruit. For, you know, didn't I do this, 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 and this for you? He says, I, I never knew you. You who lived like I never gave you a law. And so you see that there's that contrast, those contrasting truths and that analogy of you're either truly abiding in Christ or you can look like it and find out you're actually cut off from him. All right, back Deuteronomy 11. That chapter starts to talk about the blessings and curses that are tied back into the land. We had talked about rain and its implications for uh, growing food and raising their animals and stuff. And toward the end of that chapter, and 26 to 32. That's the last section of chapter 11. And Moses tells them, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. And he lays all of this, has been laying this out for them, and he's developing this sort of theme. And it should remind us of back in Leviticus 26, which is where I actually want to turn. Leviticus 26 is... Yeah, it's up there with like the most underrated chapters in the Bible. It's like one of the most crucial that doesn't get talked about enough. And I almost didn't talk about it enough, but I decided to talk about it today. So in this section, this is where you have you have the blessings and the curses that are that are laid out. Uh some examples in there, 26, 2, it says, you, you shall keep my Sabbath, fear my sanctuary, I am Yahweh. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to do them. Verse 12, he says, I'll also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. He talks about bringing them out of the land and they'd have these blessings. You read in there, uh, verse 4, rains for their seasons, for the land, for its produce, for trees of the field. And you see those sort of blessings. And you have curses and 26.14. But if you do not obey me and do not do all these commands, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul loathes my judgments so as not to do all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. And he goes on to you know, explain the terror that would come. It has to deal with enemies attacking them. They're a lack of food in the land, things like this. And you actually have, you know, prophecy for the exile in this chapter as well. Verse 33, he says, you, however, I will scatter among the nations. And he's saying, you know, ultimately you guys are, you're going, you're going to be cursed. You know, he's, 
In a way, this chapter lays out the whole Bible, tells you how the whole thing's going to go. It's a big picture view, and it predicts, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will make up for its Sabbaths, all the days of the desolation, and you will be in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and make up for its Sabbaths. So you see that Yahweh alone ends up being the Sabbath keeper. He says, you guys don't keep it, but I'm going to keep it by kicking you out of the land to achieve it happening and move it forward. And it mentions... And this is the piece that doesn't get talked about a lot. We'll talk about the blessings and curses. You'll read about it in theology books, commentaries. But what gets overlooked is the promise of restoration. So you don't want to just look at the blessings and curses because otherwise, you know, things don't look too good for Israel. And it's like, I don't know if there's any hope for these people or anybody if this is the case. But in verse 40, it says, if they confess their iniquity... So here, here's a condition here. It's like things can be different than this. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also how they walked in hostility against me, I also was walking in hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make up for their iniquity. So you see that? He says something can change. But he's like, the thing that changes everything is repentance. You know, if these people repent, but it's like, but why would they repent? Well, it would be because their uncircumcised heart became humbled. It's like, well, how does that work? God does it. You find that out at the end of Deuteronomy. He says that when that happens, that'll connect them to the promises of Abraham for the land seed and, and blessing there. Verse 42 says, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land, which it needs to be said today. Land means land. Land doesn't mean Jesus. Land doesn't mean church. It, it just means land. It, and God promised these people a land based on the Abrahamic covenant and not their failures within the Mosaic covenant so you're seeing this sort of big picture exodus exile sort of theme uh, you have you know an exodus exile around mount sinai which the people learn you deserve the curses and you need the blessing but the only way you'll ever get the blessing is if i restore you to me you see the exodus exile sort of theme in in christ in the sermon on the mount which he shows up as the light who comes into the darkness. You know, he, he enters into the exile to break the exile. And you remember how he begins his sermon? He doesn't give any, any curses. He just says, blessed, blessed, blessed. But he's standing on a mount, you know, like Moses. And he says, you know, I'm the undoing of the curse. I'm the one who reverses the curse and brings the blessing. But what then becomes more clear in the Gospels is that Jesus does this not in one coming but in two comings. You know, he, he leaves for a time, he sends his spirit, he's going to come again, which you especially read about in another Exodus exile sort of book, which is Revelation. See, hey, all the Exodus plagues are coming back. There's a people in exile and God interacts on the land, brings people 
into the land and he comes back and forwards his plan with Israel. And you see the restoration of man and land under God's command. Now, to try to maybe help you to develop how you think about this in the, in the, the context of scripture more widely, I'm gonna have to move kind of quick through this, but if you, ha- if, you, if you have any questions or whatever, let me know. Uh, we're gonna have more concentrated time on this when we get toward the end of Deuteronomy, but your, your questions will help me prepare a lesson for you specifically. Uh, here's how this develops throughout scripture. You know, I- Israel fails to produce the fruit of righteousness that they were commanded to. And so Jesus tells them in Matthew 21, the, the kingdom will be taken from them and given to another nation. Now, I think what's important in that is to recognize this is something that happens temporarily. The, the nation he's talking about is temporarily the church. You hear that in how uh, in Peter's epistle, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, he takes that statement out of Exodus of being a, a well, a kingdom of priests, but he calls the church a royal priesthood. You know, he divorces the political entity element of it and rephrasing it that way. But he mentions that, you know, this calling of being brought into the priesthood and he calls the church a holy nation. So there, this thing that's connected to Israel, but distinct from it, because God never revokes his calling or choice of Israel, he still has promises to fulfill within his plan toward them. I want you to see that in Romans 11 in your own Bible, if you want to turn there. Romans chapter 11, because you might think with Jesus saying, well, the, the, the kingdom's gone to another nation. Does that mean that he has rejected national Israel? Well, in answering that question, Romans chapter 11, Paul says, I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes to talking about the even when Elijah thought that, that there was a remnant that was preserved even in that, during that time. It's like, well, what is, how does this work with Abrahamic blessing, this people being temporarily taken away from this blessing? Uh, partially, by the way, you're gonna hear that word here. We'll pick up in 11.11. He says, I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? So when Israel stumbled, did it mean that they would just totally fall out of God's promises and plan forever? It says, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So you see, he still has a plan that's still connected to them, but it involves the, the Gentiles that now make them jealous. It says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? So Paul's perhaps thinking back into Leviticus 26 and thinking God still has to give them the restoration, he said. He said, you know, if they repent, he's gonna bring them back into Abrahamic blessing. And even at this point right here in scripture, Romans 11, he's saying that's still going to happen. It's still future from this point. There's gonna be this 
fullness of Israel being brought in. And he's saying, that's going to be even better. He says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen. I see he's talking about ethnic, national, Jewish people. And to save some of them. It says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So he's like, you're right, you're seeing there is a, a rejection that has happened, but it doesn't mean that they're not going to be accepted in the future. He says, if the first piece of the dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them in the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. So there's this sort of like hermeneutical phenomenon of where you can have the boastful Gentile where they say, well, Israel lost all the promises and we get them in the church. That's what it sounds like today. He says, but here's an instruction in scripture. He says, Gentile person, don't boast in these things. Don't say, well, because of their disobedience, I got this, and, and now they never get it. They forfeited it. Paul's saying, they haven't, uh, they haven't lost these promises because God is faithful. Their unfaithfulness doesn't undo God's faithfulness. And he says, but if you do boast against them, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You see, Gentiles are grafted into a Israel religion. You know, it originates... It comes from them, and they, they still have a task that is future as God's servant nation. What has been fulfilled as a purpose from that nation is the Messiah coming from them, but they haven't fulfilled their role when Jesus said to his disciples, this is, I'll give you a cross-reference. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. and he says, when Jesus says, when I reign on my glorious throne, and he says, and you disciples, you know, reign at the 12 tribes. There's going to be 12 other ruling spots under me that you guys are going to be sitting on those places when I rule on my throne. Now, and, and Jesus meant that. He didn't say, well, I'm just spiritually talking about the church. And by 12, I don't really mean 12. By ruling, I mean just spiritually and not like really actually on the earth. You know, he didn't qualify it with a bunch of statements like that. Uh, he just meant what he said. 11, picking up in 11.20, says, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So he's looking for to Jewish people uh, being saved. They can be grafted back in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? He says, for I do not want you to be, you brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So one of the things you've got to recognize, Gentiles can be uninformed and wise in their own estimation and need to be corrected here. 
you know, this is for us. And here's the mystery, he says, that a partial, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. He doesn't say a total hardening. So it's something that's partial. This is where I'm saying it's temporary. It's not all of them forever. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which is a phrase that Luke uses. He talks about the time of the Gentiles, and it's a, a marker for a particular section in history in which we live that God fulfills and does certain things that are followed by other things. He says, so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. Now, again, he's talking about national, ethnic Israel. He says, there's going to be a point in history where living Israelites, the ones that are there, all of them are going to be saved. He says, just as it is written. He doesn't say different than it is written. It exactly how it was written, exactly how it was understood you know, going back into prophecy that Isaiah gave, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Do you remember, how is it that they come to confess their iniquities as it talks about in Leviticus 26? How does the uncircumcised heart become humbled? This, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. Why is he going to do, why is he going to do that? Why does God have to pick, why can't he just say, look, I gave you guys a great privilege you totally botched it. You know, they're, they're, yeah, because God is faithful. That was a good interruption. I like that one. <laughs> you just, there's some things you just can't hold in too long. <laughs> so this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So look at this. He's still saying, they're still God's chosen people, even right here, even though they just crucified the Messiah and they're persecuting you, some of them. He says, there's still God's, there's still this choice of a nation. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts that were given to them can't be taken away. The calling that he had for that nation can't be taken away. Yeah, we might have to do just a, a, a lesson on uh, the church and Israel. This is quite a topic. I know it's something that's getting talked about uh, a lot today. If you get on the internet and you search Christian things, you probably come across some stuff on this. But you know, I, our aim isn't to try to find some theological camp and to sit in it. But to the way that I like to put it, you see these... They'll say, oh, there's this camp and there's this camp. I say, well, actually, we're on the same camp. We're in Bible camp. And we're trying to figure out what this means together. Because ultimately, we're not disagreeing with each other. We're disagreeing with God if we get these things wrong. You know, there's, there's a lot more at stake and, you know, getting our eschatology wrong or the relationship of Israel in, in the church. It's not about disagreeing with another flavor of Christianity. It's about whether or not you, you agree with God or not. And we, we can know everything that he has revealed to us. And he has told, he has given us an eschatology in this book. He has explained to us what Israel and land and church mean, all of that stuff. And, and it belongs to us. We can know it. And I would say we also must know it because we're to be workmen who are not to be ashamed in how we handle this word God has given us a clear word, but clear doesn't always mean easy, all right? 
It's like with the calculus book. You know, you get, you know, some kid, they start going through calculus book, and they're like, this is stupid. I don't understand it. It's like the book's not stupid. The problem's not with the book. <laughs> you know, it's clear it's just hard. There's parts like that in the Bible. It's totally clear it's just hard, and it, and it takes time. And it's a big book that was written over a lot of years of history and languages and history that we have to learn about to make accurate conclusions. But be encouraged. We can know these things. And they will be for our hope, for our holiness, and a warning to the unconverted. So I'll close there, here. I'll close here <laughs> in this present moment, not there in a future moment. And whatever questions you have, let, let, let me know. I want to be a, a help to you and the teaching ministry that God has given me. And perhaps maybe you'll, you'll even uh, help me to be more faithful and accurate in my handling of the word. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for a clear word. And I pray that we would never add to it or take away from it, that we would never misinterpret it. We would understand it as you revealed it so that we would honor you and enjoy you and glorify you as you instruct us, as you teach us. We thank you for this call to love you, to be devoted to you. We thank you for the relationship that we have with you and do not deserve. It is a privilege that perhaps we take for granted way too often. Pray that you would increase our motivation for you, increase our desire for you, for that which is holy, that we would walk in the holiness in which you call us and that you would work among us a greater producing of that fruit of peace and unity so that we would have a, a white hot witness for you within this world that others would see what you're like that your gospel would be proclaimed and the things that we speak and the way in which we live and it is sweet this morning to dwell together as brothers because you have given us the privilege not of only knowing you, but of being family together, to enjoy hearing from you together, to enjoy praying together, to later enjoy singing songs to you together. Help us to invest in one another, to serve one another as our Christ exampled in his own ministry so that you would be glorified among us. Thank you for this fellowship. Your name be praised forever. Amen.